Kia ora and welcome to Cinema in Context, where we discuss all things film and the connections between. My name is Jeremy Downing. I'm William Chen. And I'm Sarah Watt. And each month at Cinema in Context, we discuss two films, one current and one retrospective, with some connection. It could be the same actor, the same director, or a similar theme. This month, we are discussing Mank, which came out on Netflix this year, and Citizen Kane, which came came out way back in 1941. Mm. Uh, and both films being in black and white, having similar musical styles, and Mank is about the writing of Citizen Kane. So <laughs> there you go. There's our connection there. So let's jump in with Citizen Kane, 1941, directed by Orson Welles, the Wunderkind of, I guess, New York, Hollywood. Back in the day, and uh, he Transformers wrote... the movie's own Orson Welles <laughs> from 1980. Six, yeah, the year I was born. Um, so he plays uh, Charles Foster Kane as well. So he's the lead of the movie, and it is based on, I guess, a number of different uh, moguls of the day mapping the rise of this media mogul, Citizen Kane, uh, his his trials and tribulations, and his eventual fall. With the movie starting with his death. Him uttering the words Rosebud, and then the reporting team that are reporting on his death wanting to find out what Rosebud is in the hope of figuring out who the man was behind the myth. Um, and of course, there was great uh, speculation, great rumours that this film was based directly on uh, Hearst. What's Hearst's first name? Well, William Randolph Hearst. William Randolph Hearst. There is some debate about whether or not uh, that is true. I guess we'll get into that soon. And, um, yeah, that's, that's Citizen Kane, considered by many the greatest film of all time. I was going to mm-hmm. say, before we launch into Mank, absolutely considered by more people than any other film to be the greatest film of all time. And we will get into whether that is true. Mm-hmm. Excellent. I'm now going to hand it over to William. William, give us a bit of a, an introduction to Mank. All right. So, Mank. Guys, guys. I just watched an origin story with a one-word title about a misunderstood outsider trying to stay atop his self-destructive tendencies in order to survive in the seedy, capitalist underbelly of America. But try as he must, our hero finds that he cannot escape his cynicism, and that the only way he can really self-actuate is by being a real jerk to those around him. The film climaxes when our protagonist lectures his nemesis, who has spit the film making jokes at his expense. This is a heavy-handed tirade about the political themes of the film, just in case the audience doesn't quite get it, while an in-universe audience watches with increasing discomfort. But it all works out in the end as our hero achieves the fame he's always wanted. Oh, it's also a stark period piece heavily inspired by the cinematic language of a bygone era of Hollywood that is really so in love with retro aesthetics that what starts as a genuine homage quickly veers into parody, whilst remaining a pale facsimile of the earlier works. But enough about Joker, uh, everyone! I was oh waiting my for Joker. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> whoa, whoa, wait. I have another one. Now, I, I don't write the second one. Uh, this is from Dave Chen on Stash Filmcast, and I, I really, really enjoyed it. So, here we go. Mac, part two. Finally watch the David Fincher film that stars Charles Dance and involves an artist who is just trying to make something great while studio forces were arrayed against him. In fact, the true authorship of the work in question is eventually disputed. But enough about Alien 3! (laughs) (laughs) That one goes a little meta. Wow, that's clever. Well, team, it's, it's, it's worth saying now that we will be discussing both films in detail and with spoilers. 
uh, particularly with Citizen Kane, and if you've somehow missed the zeitgeist on Citizen Kane, it's got one of the greatest endings of all time, which is a, a wonderful, wonderful surprise. So, uh, yeah, if you haven't seen Citizen Kane and you don't want one of the greatest endings spoiled, I'd pause this podcast and come back to it. You've had day. 80 years, guys. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but there is no excuse. <laughs> and with Mank, I, I mean, I don't feel it's a, it's a film that has huge, huge surprises to be spoiled, but the same goes there, that if, if you don't want those, those details spoiled, pause and come back to us. But yeah, let's let's jump in, Sarah. Because you haven't had the chance to speak really yet, because um, we've done both of the introductions. Mm. Start us off. Which one would you like to jump in with? I guess let's start at the very beginning. Um, back in the day, uh, I lived in London for a term, and I uh, well for a long time. And I used to go down the British Film Institute BFI South Bank and watch old films quite regularly. So of course, Citizen Kane was one of those, and that was my introduction to it. This will have been in the early two thousands. And I'd heard this is the greatest film of all time. And I uh, considered myself relatively cinephiliac. Um, But I have to say, I was underwhelmed. And I think I was underwhelmed because I had been told this is the greatest film of all time. And obviously there is a great deal to appreciate about Citizen Kane. But I remember, or all I remember really from that that first viewing was the the terrific... um, camera shot that goes up the outside of the nightclub and then ostensibly through the glass roof and into the club. And I remember going, well, that's clever. And this was the early 2000s. Um, And so re-watching Citizen Kane just the other day for the purposes of this podcast uh, was a wonderful experience. And I appreciated it so much more. It is still far from the greatest film of all time in my world. Um, But I can absolutely appreciate why in 1941 it was probably, and I know that you guys will bring a lot to the table to explain this, groundbreaking in an extraordinary number of ways. It is not for me a perfect film. Uh, mainly, I think, um, well, we'll talk about this, but mainly, I think, narratively. But there is so much cinematically about it that is extraordinary that I can't wait to get into a bit of a discussion about it. I love that. I, I, when I watched the film, yeah, probably when I was at university years ago, uh, I only thing I really remember is the ending, the Rosebud reveal. Mm. Um, and I remember the kind of the broken character of, of his, his second wife. What's her name? Um, Susan Alexander. Susan mm. Alexander. And just the way that they show that contrast between her being this lovely kind of cheeky young woman and then her kind of broken self. Mm. But what I really appreciated on rewatching it was the cinematic quality. I was blown away. Like the shot... The first shot of the opera where the camera just goes up and up and up and up and up and up. And I'm like, I don't know how they did that. I don't know it was a drone. Nah. Yeah, right. But I don't know where the cuts were. I don't mm. know which, what was matte painting. I don't know what was set. Um, and then they show the the other side of that, that moment, which mm. was a lovely yeah. moment. Um, all the shots of like multiple doorways near the end with Kane and his wife leaving him is really impressive. Um, there's the huge shot with him speaking to the crowd with the painting behind him, which I think was a painting as well, with little lights being waggled behind the, the people to make them look like it was a real crowd of people there. Mm. So there's a lot going on. All the stuff with Xanadu. Mm. Um, oh, apparently, there's, apparently there's a shot of, um, there's a plate of King Kong in um, the scene where they go to the, the kind of the tent sequence. Um, there's like a shot of pterodactyls that looks like birds flying around. <laughs> um, but there's a lot of, it feels to me, like it's got this wonderful um, use what you can vibe about it. This like we're gonna we're gonna use every technique we can to make this film feel as big and broad and and it, and it really leans on cinema magic, movie magic to, mm. to achieve that. I loved the cast. I thought that the cast 
you know, you can sense that they're a team, that they've come from this, like, oh, I don't know what their theatre company was, but there was the group well, of Well, it's, it's the, the, the very end of the movie, right? I, I love that the movie ends with a, a little placard that comes up, and it's, most of the principal actors in Citizen Kane are new to motion pictures. The Mercury Theatre is proud to introduce them, and then with the cast list. That's amazing. It is amazing. And their performances are sensational. Yeah. So it isn't even a case of, oh, good for you. <laughs> Making it into motion pictures, you did okay. They and were amazing. It's fantastic how they're all in their you know twenties basically, and yet through through the passage of time in the movie, they you know show them at different ages via old age makeup, mm. and the makeup looks really good. Yes, like it's you know nowadays we have the de aging stuff or the re aging stuff, and this holds up. It just goes to show how good makeup. I mean, I prefer yeah. good makeup over all of that CGI trying to make people look different. But I, I just, that sense of camaraderie, that sense of tightness, mm. there's, like, like the, the female characters in this film, um, you know, they're all, it doesn't like pass the Bechdel test, they're all talking about Kane, but they feel like real people, mm. and the women that are playing them have this strength about him, like his mother and his first, his two wives and all of that kind of thing, all of his friends at the news station, mm -hmm. his guardian, like there's just this real clear character and bite mm. to every single one of those people. So there was a lot. There was a lot going on that I missed the first time or didn't appreciate the first time. That mm -hmm. I really was enjoying in this rewatch. You've prompted something, and sorry, William, I'm going to bust in on your initial recollections just to say, isn't it interesting that um, I think it's it's probably broadly fair to say that theatrical acting is by its very nature a little bit bigger, a little bit deeper than when you get onto the screen and you have to sort of pare things down a bit. And I wonder whether the the really plumped up fleshed out characters that you're that you're receiving Jeremy are because this is a lot of these performers um, motion picture debut and so they're bringing with them this th sort of theatrical training or I don't know the, the way that they would act if they were on stage rather than being these Marlena Dietrich uh, sort of Jean Harlow beauties who have probably had to become a bit sort of muted I don't know it's just a hypothesis but I also uh, think that they would have built trust together as a team and they also would have built a, a sense of Oh, is equilibrium the right word? Or just like their, 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 where their performances are sitting mm. would be much more in, in unison and in harmony sure. because they've been doing work together for so long. Right. And their radio plays as well. You know, they did the, the famous War, War of the Worlds, Worlds mm. radio play that a lot of people believed was true. And, mm. and I think mm. all of that work, all of that pre-work, all of that trust, all of that teamwork really yeah. shows on screen. And the only thing I can think of that has a similar... Um, similar kind of vibe to it in, in modern film is the Christopher Guest. I knew you were going to say yeah. that. The Christopher so Guest So it is, films. it's the ensemble. It's <laughs> yeah. basically, here's my ensemble cast and we've worked together lots of times before and we just slip into a groove and off we go. Yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. Nicely put. Yeah, I, I didn't even think about that, but that's a very apt comparison. My experiences, like, like many of my experiences with these older movies, um, it was not a good first contact with Citizen Kane, guys. Was I, this I saw... your first contact? No, no, no. Oh, oh. Um, this was in the early 2000s right, as well. Right, But just like with <laughs> such works as Blade Runner and Apocalypse Now, I saw this one on a plane. No! Oh! <laughs> <laughs> I love that you pick these, you're like, you're sitting on a plane and you've got... Like low kind of quality, <laughs> yeah. or, you know, easy to watch stuff. Like, no, I'm gonna pick a, a grandiose. And, and, yeah. That's exactly what it is, right? And and, and re remember, the audience, these were older planes where the LCD screens were really, really small mm. and badly angled, and all that good stuff. And of course, you go through the catalog, and 
trash, stuff that I wouldn't want to watch. Ooh, Citizen Kane. I hear that's the greatest movie of all time. <laughs> Lawrence Arabia. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I, I, I remember some things about Citizen Kane watching Gosh. it on a plane. Kane on a plane. Um, <laughs> but I remember the ending and being really blown away. I, I, I wasn't spoiled about it. I, I guess... Even though I remember, or oh, in retrospect, you know, there's so many Sim- um, Simpsons references on Citizen Kane. And of course, um, uh, what's called Animaniacs with Brain. I was just doing an Orson Welles impression to the whole thing. And you don't really, well, you don't pick it up until you see what, you know, the source material the stuff is referencing. Mm. And so that kind of fell into stark relief, which is really cool. The cinematography... I don't remember a lot of it, I guess, because it was, it was tiny. Time. It was tiny and just... <laughs> Do you guys remember those old LCD screens, how the, the RGB kind of bled through and it was just, it was a mess. And the mm. black and white movie doesn't really work with no. that stuff. Um, but I remember the plot and I rem- remember the time jumps and I remember that ending, which is so powerful. And this time re-watching it on an HDTV, like, my goodness, this movie is pretty. It's mm. so nice to look yes. at. Especially as we kind of compare this to Mank. Mac uses a lot of like modern digital technologies to retrofit to a earlier style, right? They they add stuff like film scratches and cigarette burns, even real changes, and somehow it just doesn't look as good as Citizen Kane. I don't think that's my bias shining through, but Citizen Kane is, is shot in a way where the the blacks are so black and the lights are so light, mm. and there's this beautiful contrast throughout the movie. Um, regardless of whether it's day, it's night, it's indoors, it's outdoors. Whereas Mac, I guess they tried to go for a more dreamy quality, but everything just seems super washed out and slightly blurry. Mm. And visually, it just wasn't super appealing to me. But mm. again, going back to the old film, I, I agree, you guys, the special effects are astounding. Mm. Um, I-, I love how both of you were talking about the, the shots that travel through stuff. Mm. And isn't it cool that we've gone full circle, how David Fincher would use such shots in Panic Room going through the mm. kettle handle? Mm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, this is this is really, really cool stuff. Um, also, some, some of those weird, weird camera angles, right? Like you, you watch films from the 30s and 40s, and everything is is pretty static. I mean, there's there's dolly shots and tracking shots, but for the most part, you don't get these weird Dutch angles from the floorboard. The, the, the shots of the ceilings of sound stages, which is uh, you never see. I guess they had to construct the ceiling because the camera was going to be angled that mm, way. Mm, yeah. Um, just visually astounding, and of course, we'll talk about the plot later on in conjunction to Mank as well. Um, a lot to love about this movie. I love that you bring up that Dutch angle, that because that's the one that really stuck out to me with him talking with his friend that ends up writing the piece, or he writes the piece with his name about his wife. Yeah. And there's this, it's just this, and I was trying to figure out why the low angle shot was being used in that, that instance and why they needed to be more powerful. And, and there, was, there was some reason I can't remember, but I was just like, it's so, it feels so, um, oh, like there's such a confidence and, yeah. and an experimentation. And it reminds me of, of a lot of different early directors. Like I think about Baz Luhrmann's first, like, you know, you know I love Strictly Ballroom, but mm. also Romeo and Juliet and just mm-hmm. the, the experimentation mm. with camera and just doing whatever needs to be done to make this the most dynamic scene possible. Mm. Um, and I love that you bring up David Finch's, you know, earlier work. Well, his, it was his fourth film, I think, or fifth mm. film, Panic Room. But a lot of that stuff that he did that was just like, let's just do this. We're going to technically figure it out. Um, and I think that 
there's a missed opportunity with Mank. Um, like, it's a shame that, like, there's an amazing shot in Mank of Charles Dance's character of Hearst sitting on his throne and the fire behind him. <laughs> mm. But I can tell the fire's computer generated. Yeah. Mm. Like, just things like that. It's like, oh, that just takes me away. Or, like, there's the wonderful shots of, um, or scene with Amanda Seyfried walking along the edge of the yeah. fountain. And mm. the zoo in the background. But you can sort of tell that it's all a bit artificial. You think it's composited, sort of. Oh, yeah, the, the CGI. The, the animals were definitely CGI. Yeah, right. CGI yeah. monkeys. and Unless they trained giraffes to act on Sure, cheer. sure. Yeah, but I mean, like... CGI. But they feel... Do you mean it feels yeah. compos- composited? Yeah. yeah. It's, like, it's like they're trying to go for this lo-fi with the real changes, and yet they've got all this money and technique to kind of fabricate giraffes, elephants, and monkeys. I, I think it's such a... Also fascinating comparison to another Netflix black and white film, Roma. Yeah, um, I was thinking of Roma. Which, mm. you know, they're both digital films shot in very, very high fidelity, and yet Roma is crystal clear yes. um, for a purpose, right? And then Mac, they... I guess, what do they do? They degraded the resolution, right, to make it look like it was on film. Um, and I don't know, but Roma just seems so much more striking compared to Mank, which... Has again going back to my previous point, it has a, a washed out quality that doesn't doesn't quite sit right. Mm. Yeah, interesting because Alfonso Cuarón he he uses CGI a lot, but mm-hmm. he seems to use it in a way that I don't notice it as much. I thought Roma was much more successful as far mm-hmm. as a black and white Netflix film <laughs> goes, for sure. <laughs> but it's interesting what you say, William, about the sharp versus not, because Mank at the very well. Yeah, pretty much. The very, very beginning, there is an, there is an exterior shot of the, them getting out of the car and then going into the house with Mank to lay him down. And that suddenly felt to me very, very crisp. But the rest of the film, mm. I feel, was like Vaseline on the lens yeah, and quite, quite sort of a bit foggy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found the whole of Mank quite foggy, to be quite honest. But, um, and I mean that metaphorically <laughs> as well as literally. I just wanted to touch on the, um, the Dutch angle uh, in um, Citizen Kane is interesting because you're absolutely right, William. Everything seemed... No, wait. Was it in Citizen... See, yeah. this is the other problem. I've conflated the two films. <laughs> yeah, right. But I do remember l- saying out loud to my husband when we watched Citizen Kane, oh, Dutch angle. So it must have been like, oh, all of a sudden. Yeah. And I know that, you know, you use a Dutch angle in a moment of tension and all that. And the the camera on the floor. Apparently, they had to they had to cut into the oh, floor cool. in order to mount the camera <laughs> there. But you're right, Jeremy. At the same time, I was like, "Well, this is very interesting, and it's clearly innovative." But I wonder what it's um, trying to do. But I wanted to talk about deep depth of field because mm. that obviously is what I don't. And I have not read into this properly. I don't know if if Citizen Kane was the first movie to use that, but it is probably the most. Uh, notable or referenced film to have those extraordinary shots and there are several of them where everything is in focus all at once and I know and usually you've got someone or something but usually someone very 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 in the foreground haven't you and you expect them to be in focus and then there's all those shots with either young Charles playing outside oh out the window gosh, that shot is so incredible and then there's the other one where his terribly handsome friend uh the newspaper writer, I don't know why I've got the name. Jebediah Leland? Yes. So um, where he walks from right, right, right at the back of the shot, walks forward, 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 Mm. forward, forward, and is in focus the whole time, and goes from being minuscule man all the way up to being proper-sized man. I think it is the first film. I think they developed it it for this movie. Right. Um, Well, Wells seems to get credit for everything in this, but Wells and and the the photographer. Yeah, Greg Tolan, which it's super cool that they share, like, the main credit. 
Um, it's directed by a written, well, written and directed by Orson Welles, and cinematography by Toland. Wonderful. Um, directed, which, and, directed and produced by. And Orson. produced. Oh yes, because the writing one is, is with Mankiewicz mm-hmm. and the other the other slide. Um, I mentioned in our chat before this that it made sense to me that we could have paired Mank with Ed Wood, mm. the Tim Burton mm-hmm. film, mm. which um, is in black and white. It's a celebration of the work of Ed Wood, who was obsessed with Orson Welles. And mm. there's a scene in Ed Wood where Johnny Depp's character goes and speaks with Orson Welles, who is voiced by the voice of Brain from Animaniacs <laughs> um, and played by Vincent... Um, Price. No, uh, Vincent no. Dore. Uh, uh, D'Onofrio. Yeah, D'Onofrio. Yeah, that's right, that's right. He plays Orson Welles, but is voiced by... I can't remember the guy. Uh, Maurice LaMarche, I think. Yeah, is he also yeah. the voice in Reservoir Dogs of the, the radio? I, I'm not sure. Big, big, killing bears, big, you know, whatever mm-hmm. it is. Anyways, but Orson... Uh, uh, Ed Wood, sorry... Um, is uh, back to that point of kind of trying to evoke the look and the feel mm. but with a much bigger budget or with mm-hmm. new technology the opening sequence of edward is a stop animation title sequence true tim burton-esque that pulls from all of edward's five films and i've seen all of edward's five films there's a lot of easter eggs in there um that's just so much fun to watch uh, and that that sequence cost more than all of his five films edward's <laughs> five films put together i think Mm-mm. um but, the, but that film does it really well, and it uses lots of different techniques, and it evokes that feeling, um, but it doesn't, uh, you know, it, it does it in a way that is in full service to the story. And I, and I like what you're bringing up about Mank, William, in terms of it feeling just a little bit, it, it, it just didn't quite click for me, the, mm. the look of it. It felt very digital, regardless mm-hmm. of de- downgrading. Um, the, the cigarette burns were cool, but they sort of took me out yeah. of the movie a little <laughs> no, bit. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> um, and I thought that it, it was okay. It was just okay. It wasn't, it wasn't up to David Finch's yeah. usual, uh, like, hitting. He didn't quite, didn't quite land, you know, whereas those films often land, all of those elements land. Mm. But I wasn't, wasn't feeling it. So let's think about the provenance of Mank. Um, We know that the screenplay itself was written by David Fincher's father in the 90s and it was originally due for production in the late 1990s and the father died in 2003 and obviously as we know the production of the film didn't quite make it until 2019. Um, and you may or may not know this, but I did actually do a bit of research this time. That um, And he's Jack Fincher, isn't he? Jack Fincher was a journalist and a screenwriter. Um, and apparently he based the script for Mank very, very much on a 50,000-word Pauline Kale essay. Yeah, right, that, that propagates this idea that, that Mankiewicz might have been a little bit sidelined or that what Wells pretends to have had more uh, more input than he actually did, and all that sort of thing. So, my point is this. David Fincher, loyal to his dad, has a screenplay that his dad has written and wants to create that film. So, therefore, I guess is somewhat beholden to the script that his father has produced. And is wanting, obviously, it's so evident, isn't it? Because there are, depth, there are deep depth of field shots in Mank as well, which are actually rather nice, where you've got Gary Oldman very, very much sort of yeah. stage left... Uh, or screen right or whatever, and then you can still still see Charles Dance in focus in the background and, and whatnot. There's all those shots when he's walking around the studio uh, studio lot, and everything is in focus, which right. looks really cool. Right. So there are some nice things that Fincher does in order to sort of make this look like a uh, either a Wellsian film or Citizen Kane itself and all that. What I'm interested in, I guess, is I think that's a re- I think it's an interesting uh, dilemma to be in 2019 with all of the uh, technology that is available to you, you're beholden to a script that you have actually quite sort of emotional ties to, 
um, you want to use shots and you want to use evocations from the, you know, there's the, the moment, isn't there, when Mank has um, just, uh, he, he's passed out on his bed and there's the close-up shot of his hand dropping the glass bottle and it's a clear sort of callback to uh, dropping the snow globe and all that sort of thing. So I don't know, I just, yeah, you, you know, you've got this wonderful technology, everything looks a certain way, you need to fuzz it up a little bit to make it look old, so you stick a few Tarantino in, Tarantinesque uh, cigarette burns in and all that stuff. I don't know. I I think it's interesting. Like I, I've the more I've looked into the Kale article, it seems that it's more. I think she's even said it was taken out of context. I don't think there's as much truth to it. No, as, she's been debunked. I yeah, think. yeah. And, and the, the Orson Welles actually was very much involved in the writing. So the film it, it sort of does take an angle, and already it's a little bit like oh, like I can see what you're trying to do. But I tell you what, I was disappointed in with uh, Mank mostly is that i was sitting there going what's this movie about, about exactly like, where's it going yeah and then there was a there was a scene the scene where they're sitting in hertz's room and they're all kind of having that awkward conversation across the room i was mm-hmm. like okay there's something happening here and then it seemed to me that they were setting this up the rosebud of this movie was mm. what happened that that hurt mank so much that he wanted to write this script mm-hmm. about hurst and i was like ah that's a cool little mystery box mm. that you will answer with a little button at the end of the film mm. and then you had that scene that, and it is an amazing scene where he's drunk at the the dinner party but i didn't know why he was so angry at why he was so um vociferous vociferous yeah. towards hearst it wasn't clear and i was like okay cool so we don't know there's a missing piece here and, and amanda cypher's character seemed annoyed at him and then i was thinking okay the button is going to be the scene before this it's going to lead into that mm. and we got the metaphor of the the what was it? The the, the organ grinder's monkey. Yeah. yeah, which was cool. I got that. Yeah, you know, like that was that was nice. But that wasn't. That, he answer. was already annoyed at, mm. the, before that. So I don't know. Did I miss something? Well, I, I'm going to ask a question. I think I asked already on our Lego Movie Two episode, <laughs> which is I, I don't think you're on that one, Sarah. I but, don't think I so, was because so, I have not seen it. This is, I mean, this is the grand unifying theory of things, especially in America, right? Is this movie about Trump? Well, okay. do you know? Oh, are you? I... I, I mean, it's to me, as I said in my preamble, the politics of this movie are so blunt and on the nose. Yes. And my understanding was that Mank's whole rebelling against Hearst and his inner circle was because of the, the GOP kind of using um, film, you know, using Hollywood as a propaganda machine. Mm. And he felt hurt. And betrayed by that, especially when his friend commits suicide, um, and that was what built towards the the final act, you know, and mm. all that stuff happening there. And I mean, there's some there's some ridiculous shots. The the the, the eye sculpture of the elephant with the GOP on it, kind of mm-hmm. melting into this deformed blob. All the talk about how you know what is the truth? Well, the truth is what we show them. Exactly. You know what we're selling is a dream. All that stuff. The script is it's just is laden with Trump illusions. It's about Trump, which is but so interesting be. because it was written in, in the nineties. Exactly. But that's what the original film is about, though, as well, isn't it? It's about yeah. the, how the media presents certain ideas, and it's a, it's oh a my attack goodness. on Hearst. The, the Citizen Kane has some shots that are are so prescient, especially watching in 2020, mm. that when he loses the election and they have the two different headlines and the, mm. it's like, you know, Kane wins in landslide and the other one is election fraud detected. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, my goodness. I, I, I mean, I hear you and I think it is very clear what's been trying to, trying to be said, but one another issue I have with Mank is that whether it's 
uh, some sort of allegory for our current political climate in the States, or whether it's unpacking the mythos of Cain, I don't think this film can be enjoyed without having some awareness of that. No, there wasn't no, a clear no. There wasn't a clear story, and I feel and I said to, said this to Sarah the other day. I feel like like I know I know and watched Citizen Kane, but I feel like I'd forgotten things that when I watched rewatched Citizen Kane, things would make more sense in Mank, which yeah. kind of was the case. And I think oh, there's, there was a missing thread here of just making Mank a great film. Yeah. In and of itself, well, you're right. Like the um, the Marion Davies character, um, Amanda Seyfried, like so much of her character arc is informed by Citizen Kane, right? Mm. It's what you understand about how Susan Alexander was portrayed and what the audience brings with you to Mank. Yeah, I agree. I, th- I think um, there was some... So I watched Mank uh, before I rewatched Citizen Kane. Bad move. Because for a moment there, I thought, I don't know what is happening. And then I actually did get absorbed by it, but purely as a one of those lovely evocations of old Hollywood, so that you're seeing what it's like walking between the studios and you've got all the people in their different costumes walking from soundstage A to B and so on. And then you've got that rather absurd scene in the writer's room uh, with the woman sitting there with no top on, um, with the tassels on her boobs. Uh, and then, Is that how they used to write? Movies? I have no <laughs> idea. It's extraordinary, okay. and everybody, all the men get introduced, and she doesn't. And then there's a wonderful line. I shouldn't say this, but it is wonderful line when um, Gary Oldman's character walks out and says, "Boy, what I wouldn't give to see that in a tight sweater," which is a fantastic <laughs> joke because we, and we get it. But um, but I'm interested in seeing, like you know, the fact that we all have seen in the rain. I love watching what it was like in those days. Yeah. But Mank is incredibly wordy, and if you don't get those references uh, and the the you know the, the similar shots or the dropped globe or the character arcs or all that sort of thing, I I, I agree with you, Jeremy. What's this about? Yeah, I do want to point out though. You said Mena Safran. I thought she was wonderful. Yeah, she was such a starlet. She captured that beautifully, and I always think she's. One of the most dynamic-looking actresses. Mm. Her eyes are so big, and she and when she doesn't always get the parts. I think that that kind of give her space to do what she does best. Um, I thought Gary Oldman was it was just wonderful to see him on screen again. I thought the mm-hmm. chemistry between him and him, Seyfried was fantastic. Mm. Charles Dance, Charles Dance was great. He was brilliant. Yeah. Um, uh, really interesting though, casting Brits to play like very very American Americans. True. But is it yeah, the fact that they're sort of not upper class? What would what would it be in America? Oh, that's sort of, true. You know? Like East Coast, yeah, well to do yeah, kind of. Okay. Uh, which reminds me, if I may just say, I was rewatching the other day that fantastic Golden Globes opening with um, Amy Poehler and Tina Fey, and they said, "Do you notice how so many Brits are appearing in our movies?" And and Amy says, "I really like it when they appear in our movie films <laughs> uh, with British people doing American accents." Oh, so good. So I, it was a bit like that. Yeah. I think um, with. In terms of that, we had so the, the woman that played his wife, poor Sarah, or whatever her name is, is mm-hmm. it Sarah. I thought she was wonderful. Tuppence yeah. Middleton. Is that her what name? What a freaking name! <laughs> <laughs> I thought that Lily Collins was poorly cast and just she was the weakest part of the film for me. You don't think Tom Burke as Orson Welles was the weakest link of the film? Yes. Yeah. His, his tirade at the end 
was so bad. His voice is okay. His he does vo- the voice. He sounds but, like Orson But Wilde. he isn't. He's No, he's, yes, I agree. He is not appropriate. <sighs> just that, that should be the emotional climax of the film. Um, but just how he delivers the lines and how he plays off Gary Oldman, it fell with a, a damp squirb, I thought. I think I hadn't really collected that it was potentially the climax of the film, so I was just sort of like, eh. <laughs> but I, Lily Collins is such a big part of the movie, and she was okay. Yeah. Like, she's... I, I couldn't quite figure out what that relationship was supposed to be. Like, sort of this... Well, she had a modicum of chutzpah, didn't she? I mean, she was able to say, I would appreciate it if you didn't speak to me, like, blah. That sort of thing. <laughs> She's Phil Collins' daughter. Really? Yes. Wow. Yes. <laughs> she was okay. I, I, yeah. wasn't, I wasn't, you know... The, the main thing I was looking at with her and with the, the woman who played his wife is how much... They both look like Rooney Mara, and I was like, hmm, David Fincher. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think you have a type. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I wanted to make a point that, and, and look, this is very tenuous, but I was reminded of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead with Mank, because it's a little bit like the film is focusing on somebody who's ostensibly a bit player in the much more famous story. So you've got Tom Burke's Orson Welles sort of wafting through a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Otherwise, it's really about either Rosencrantz or Guildenstern, uh, not quite dead, uh, maybe drinking himself to death. And also what's interesting to me is that, and you know, I'm interested in how much you know about this because I haven't researched it fully, but what we do know is that um, he's Herman Mankiewicz, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, he's the lesser, less successful brother of Joseph Mankiewicz. And so he's, he's even like not even the famous Mankiewicz brother. Do you know what I mean? It's pretty what, great what how... Is, what has Joseph Mankiewicz, Mankiewicz done? He, he's in the he's film, a, but... a producer, a big producer. Oh. And he, um, he, he even introduces himself in Mank as, oh, I'm one of the side characters. Right. Which is, yeah, okay, I, I see what you're doing. And here. he wrote and won an Oscar for All About Eve. Oh, and he won Best Director for All About Eve. <laughs> And um, and also a letter to three wives. I don't know, but yeah, no, he has won a trillion awards and was a, a really big cheese. So um, anyway, no, yeah, I, I agree, Sarah. Like the the, the Mankiewicz brothers, I really like the chemistry. Um, I thought it was really good. Actually, the majority of the cast in Mank is awesome. Yeah. Um, uh, what's the name? Um, Alice Howard is mayor for, of MGM fame. He was fantastic and. Him delivering that dialogue, that, that scene where they're walking through MGM and everyone's saying, oh, you know, good morning, Miss Mayor. And then just this tracking shot of him suddenly going into this room full of, like, cameos of Hollywood stars and then, you know, having this heartfelt performance about the depression. All that stuff was, was brilliant. Um, I, I kind of want to echo your thoughts in that Mac is just, it's built from all these these components, which I think work really well on their own, but never coheres. Mm. It just does not. And whether it's supposed to or not, I mean, it is a hangout movie after all. Is that what it's supposed to be? Like, we're just supposed to be with Mank as he figures out what to do with the script and kind of flashing back to inspirations? Well, it has to be, doesn't it? Because it yeah. isn't even, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not even that dramatically a question of his being wronged and not acknowledged no, or anything like that's that. That's the final it? 15 minutes. Like. <laughs> because, as you said earlier, Jeremy, actually that's not in contention and everybody knows, you yeah. know, this is not an, uh, an epiphany to, to viewers to go, wait a second, what? Did Wells not write this or mm-hmm. anything, you know? So it's kind of a non-story. And I hear you about the Hangout movie. And that's the aspects of it that are, that, that are quite nice. 
but it's also very dense and so if you and it's in black and white and that shouldn't be a thing but i think that does make i don't know i think this film you've got to listen much harder yeah, and then, especially with that crackerjack dialogue. Mm, just all these bon mots. Which like, is great. Every single line is a bon mot, which is... Man, that would be very difficult to write and make it actually feel coherent. It's like Ted Lasso. Yeah. Which is just yeah, full absolutely. of awesome, repeatable lines. So, in fact, it's just like Ted Lasso. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I think it's interesting that we've got this film that is about celebrating uh, cinema, Hollywood, the golden age of Hollywood... Um, and it's released on Netflix. Mm. I think about um, <laughs> Tarantino's recent Once Upon a Time in Hollywood being mm-hmm. another celebration and kind of this almost lament to the to the to the golden age and cinema very much changing. But with with this, you, you think Netflix original content was started by um, David Fincher with House of Cards. He yeah. came in. You know, the, there was two executives that had a meeting with David Fincher. They were the content management team uh you know mm-hmm. back in the back in 2008 whenever it was and uh he's just signed a deal with netflix to be a content producer for them for the next four years i think wow which he said Oof. that he doesn't really know like he's he, you know we'll see how successful mank is uh, I, I just enjoy the you know whatever this is I, I enjoy the creative freedom and i can do what i like because of course one of the contentious points with mac not being made was that it was going to be filmed in black and white um, and so, yeah, it's interesting that this big, one of the greatest directors currently working yeah. mm-hmm. um, is signing a, a sort of a contract with Netflix, who, help, who helped create the, con- the original content of Netflix. Um, yeah. But you know, they're probably wanting more of the extraction-like Fincher possibilities than Mank <laughs> possibilities. Do you know what I mean? Or For Mind, Netflix, Mindhunter, right? right? Mindhunter is yeah. the other sure. series that he that's made. The, with that's being... the sensible person's one, more than extraction. <laughs> but you're absolutely right, right? Mank feels very much like a personal project. And yeah. I don't begrudge his getting to do it. That's great. I, 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 I wish Mank killed someone with a rake. That would, <laughs> that would make my day. I, I think as well about uh, Francis Ford Coppola talking about, you know, he'll make... He'll make or, or Terry Gilliam. They've both talked about making... Um, studio films so that they can make their personal projects. So mm. I wonder if Mank is like, a, here's my personal project. I'll make you a few mm. more, you know... Extraction-like films. movies. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> well, to kind of pop back to, to, to Citizen Kane, since we've been talking about Mank for quite a bit, um, I have something to say. I, I mean, I, I think you guys know this, but there's a man, a certain man, and for the poor, you may be sure that he'll do all he can. Who's this one? This favourite son. Just by his action, has the traction magnets on the run. Isn't that great? I-, I love how in the middle of this movie, you have this whole rehearsed theme song for the character. And he's just like, oh, this, is this party for me? Oh, wow. Don't oh, mind if I do. Yeah. <laughs> um, can you imagine if you went to a mate's, I don't know, what was it? Like a coming home party? Mm. Um, and then suddenly he has a fully rehearsed theme song for himself coming just this, this beautiful centerpiece and ridiculous with and funny. With dancing girls. Yeah. One of whom he then goes off with? Is she one of them or I, I is she a different? Uh, she's, mm. I think she's different. Okay. Um. Uh-huh. <laughs> beautiful. I didn't pick yeah. that up. I didn't kind of, I just was like, oh, here's a scene. It's just so, it's so outrageous and so kind of out of what we would usually expect in a film that I yeah. just sort of was experiencing it for it. But it's very sycophantic, isn't mm-hmm. it? It's quite extraordinary how everybody loves him. <laughs> Yay! I just love how they show his his devolution from someone who's very very you know as as a or university dropout he's full of gumption and idealism and and you just see that erode away piecemeal 
And so by the time you actually get to Rosebud, it's it's devastating. Mm. And of course, the final shot of the film, it's not Rosebud. It's the fumes created by Rosebud kind of floating on top of Xanadu. And mm. this is this this tomb, this mausoleum that he's constructed for himself, mm. which in the end matters for nothing, right? There's that amazing Raiders of the Lost, the, the Lost Ark shot where, you know, his collections, his, yeah. his marble statues. His materialism. His materialism writ large and mm. oh my gosh that that was all real right that wasn't a map painting i it? couldn't figure that out i, I was trying to figure so out how good. they did that maybe it was miniatures uh, maybe yeah because I, these camera moves around the place and you're just like how did they do this yeah there's a lot of that and i think there's that yeah. shot where um he's uh talking with his wife and she's doing the jigsaw puzzle and there's this huge house behind them i'm like <laughs> that's not real this is not how are they doing yeah. this um, and I, I love that you bring up the Raiders of the Lost Ark because I felt that as well with the screeds and screeds of boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love the opening of the movie through the various forms of fences. Yeah. And just this idea of this man being kind of shrouded in barriers and that this film is about peeling back these layers of who he is to try and figure out, you know, and if you think of Rosebud as a metaphor as well, like what is the center of this flower? What is mm-hmm. this... What is the little nub at the center of who this man is? And, and of course, that's the very final shot as well. You zoom back out, and it's the no trespassing sign. Oh, my goodness. Mm. Actually, I think the final shot after that is, oh, the, it is the smoke. The smoke, the, and the then skies. the end up yeah. there. But it does bookend with the no trespassing, yeah. um, which is, is just brilliant. I, and I think it's interesting as well, that whole commentary on somebody having quote-unquote socialist kind of ideals mm-hmm. and then eventually becoming more of a capitalist and how he, he speaks to the common man and then he becomes this this person. And then with the, the Mankiewicz, um, the Mank film, kind of making that same call of hers or that yeah, same that's criticism. Right. And then, um, I, I mean, I there, there is an irony there in comparing it with Trump. Um, and I fully, fully agree with you. I was thinking that when watching Citizen Kane. <laughs> um, but I guess the original Citizen Kane title was the American, yeah, right. Mm. So it's a commentary on the American on dream, kind of capitalism, yeah, yeah, and it, how how it just churns people through the ringer and turns them into grotesque, you know, abominations. Except that, I mean, and this probably just sounds so ridiculously self-evident. I could have got it from a Cliff Notes book, but <laughs> except that for all his capitalism, um, he is acquiring, 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 but ostensibly taking no joy from any of it, right? Because the whole point is the only thing that he was really attached to was this sled yeah. that would have cost nothing, meant everything. Uh, and that's the, that's the message of it, which does feel different from maybe Hearst uh, and certainly Trump and people who um, are really enjoying their wealth and their capitalism. Although apparently the Rosebud being the sled is um, apparently it was based on Hearst and a story about a bicycle he had as a boy, right? And, and how that meant so much to him, um, which is also super interesting. I love the scene with him and his second wife. I keep forgetting her name. What's her name? Uh, Susan, Susan Alexander. Susan Alexander. And you know, there's that moment where he begs her to stay and you mm. can see the acting is so brilliant mm. you can see she's considering it she's like okay if he's really begging me to stay and then he says you can't do this to me and mm. she realizes oh it's all still about you like he's, mm. he's just i think there's such a lack of generosity in his character and mm. it's so wonderfully yeah. his character is so wonderfully revealed to us and how all he's really looking for is people to give him love and mm. give him that, the thing that he lost as a child. Because he was sold as a child, ostensibly, yeah. wasn't yeah. he? Well, 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 albeit for his betterment. I but, mean, you know. what, a, what a strange situation. So, uh, um, let me get this right. So, 
his his family or his mother's land um they owned like a deed to a gold mine right which was empty until they found more gold in it and so as part of the pact or the agreement with the bank they would basically sell their son to be brought up by a banker that's nuts to but, look after the fortune is that uh, the to, yeah to, to look after their fortune but also to bring their son up as a you know as a gentleman as a yes. educated which is the betterment part, right? Yeah. And it will have been obviously in an era when it was like, we're doing this for your own sure. good, not just we're getting money for selling my child. Well, yeah. I think it's clear that the mother, like I think it's pretty clear that the mother's in it for the money. Like whilst mm-hmm. she might convince herself that it's for the betterment of my son. Yeah. Um, but it's complicated, right? Because you've got the yeah. dad that doesn't want him to go. But, but the there's, there's also, um, it's insinuated that the, the dad beats him. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it's, it's like it's a complicated scenario. Yeah. Which, what a wonderfully complicated little web of mm-hmm. motivations. And um, yeah, the, the the mother and the father are both kind of villains and heroes of Cain, depending yeah. on which way you look at. I, I mean, for for Cain, they were you know the only part of his life that actually meant anything. And that happens in real life, doesn't it? You know, yeah. parent uh, children can be can be uh, abused and beaten or whatever by their parents, and still consider those parents to be their heroes and their you know their everything. So. Yeah. Um, so it's a deeply sad film. Yeah. It is really, really sad. And uh, I mean, going back to um, what you guys said about peeling back the onion, just the structure of the film, especially for something made in 1941, mm. is is so brilliant how you, you are kind of seeing different angles from different viewpoints mm. of who this man actually was and how the film plays with time um, and the passage of time. Like mm. there are, I mean, come on, he, he jumps, what was it? 20 years within the span of one cut mm. like you see him as a kid and then he's a university student mm. and then he's like the newspaper magnet of america like and that's within one scene it's it's incredible but also the back and forthness in citizen kane works yeah. really well yeah and i totally got it and i knew where i was at all times mm-hmm. and 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 similarly going back to the wonderfully cut scene of him sitting at the breakfast table with his <laughs> wife and how you just get this magnificent picture of the sort of deterioration of a marriage over boom 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 beautiful mank of course in a cutesy kind of way, tries to do the same. We'll do an intertitle oh, typed on I the screen. Hated that. I hated and that as well. Do you know? It was I, too cute. Too it, cute. It was too cute, but also it didn't work enough. Like we needed it to tell us this is a flashback or whatever. But I still could not follow. Yeah. In my own brain. I agree. Well, hang, hang on a second. Has he already met? <laughs> Wait. Is he like? With well, what? I, I guess huh? at the end they they dovetail the two timelines, which uh, works a little better when he's having the the big old speech at the the at her party and at the same time it's the election night and all that stuff's happening um so the scenes get shorter and shorter and shorter and it's more urgent and so uh, for, for me it, it felt like it worked better then but at the beginning of the film just yeah really loose yeah and i but i will say like the end of mank i guess the the ending is more hopeful and positive than the ending of citizen kane and that it's with it's mank with the lily collins character she's found out that her lover is safe and there's that kind of looking across at the horizon and the sun so I could see where they were trying to go with it, but I, I'm still not convinced it was clear that there was that kind of arc in the film. Mm. It's trying to do a lot of different things, that movie, mm. but none of them are strong enough to stand on its own two feet, regardless of being about Citizen Kane or some sort of commentary on And politics. that's exactly, that. that's kind of what I was getting at when I said about its provenance and how it's complicated because it's a personal story, blah, blah, dad wrote it, I want to do these things and make it an homage, but I got to do this and then the other and I'm using new technology and making it look old and it just feels like it doesn't quite work. 
doesn't quite land, eh? Mm. Well, that's a good place to land our podcast if you're happy with that. Doesn't quite land. Thank you for listening to another episode of Cinema in Context. If you enjoyed our podcast, then please share it with your film-loving friends. You can listen to Cinema in Context through SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, which are great places to let us know what you think of this episode or give us suggestions for future films to discuss and compare. Look out for our next episode in a month's time, and until then, Noho Ora Mai!